Hello, and thank you for listening to Battling With Business. This is Gareth Tennant. This week's episode is another influencers episode, and we're covering Erwin Rommel. When Chris and I started researching and then discussing Rommel, we realised that there's a hell of a lot to talk about. And so rather than edit down the episode into the normal hour-long slot, we've decided to split this over two episodes. But don't worry, we're going to release them both in the same week. In the first episode, we're going to explore Rommel's early career from his experiences in the First World War right up until the Second World War from 1939. In the second episode, we will then explore his exploits through the Second World War and then start to draw out, as usual, the lessons in leadership, management, strategy, tactics, and all the other things that we talk about. Thank you for indulging us in this, and we hope you forgive us for taking up more of your valuable time. But hopefully you'll agree with us that it is well worth exploring Rommel in this more detailed way. Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And in this week's podcast, we are back to our influencers episode, and I believe, Chris, you're going to introduce this week's influencer. Yes, I am. So, you know, my brief sojourn in the military means that I don't have the same background as you do. I know you've been to staff college. And so many of these, particularly the military people we've talked about, perhaps, you know, a little bit more. So this was a really fascinating journey for me uh, around the person we're talking about. And I'll, I'll, you know, rather than keep people in suspense, this is all about Erwin Rommel, the Second World War general, uh, German general, if you haven't guessed from the name. Um, and I suspect lots of people know his name. I suspect our military audience may know a little bit more and our civilian audience may know quite a lot less. But this this was a fascinating one for me to do. We, we you know, we talked about Steve Jobs. We've covered Leonard Cheshire. Um, we've also talked about John Boyd. For someone like Leonard Cheshire, what was really easy was we could talk about things he did and the, the leadership lessons kind of immediately fell out of it. He did something. It was a good thing. Why did it happen? How did it work? Rommel for me was very, very different because it, it was a contradiction for many of the very, in inverted commas, good things he did. And this is not really a podcast to judge good or bad in fact we'll even touch on that in a different way in this but for everything he did where people said he was very good at this there was often someone else who said i thought he was very bad at this so there's there's a lot yeah. of contentiousness about that um so hopefully this is an interesting one spoiler or not spoiler maybe this is more of a sort of a, a heads up i am not a historian and so while i've looked at various sources for this including our friend wikipedia um, if people hear either the incorrect regiment he was with or action he took 
or I do a very, very poor job about talking about his time in North Africa. I apologize. There are some excellent podcasts and books about it, but hopefully what I wanted to catch was sort of the essence of the man. So um, we'll kick off. Actually, I'm going to, I am, I'm going to go back. Um, Gareth, at a high level, what do you know about Rommel? Yeah. So I think you're right to point out that my military uh, I was going to say my military history there. My my military experience has meant that I have an awareness of who he was and what he did as a result of studying military leaders, battles and all that sort of stuff. So I know, as you say, probably slightly more than your average civilian who doesn't have a specific interest in Second World War history in that I know the campaigns that he was involved in and roughly what his roles were in those things. And I've looked at Rommel through the lens of evaluating him as an operational commander, not in any great detail. So I've never studied Rommel specifically. And and as a result, I've never read any books on Rommel. But I have obviously read lots of books about the Second World War military tactics, especially around his North Africa campaign. So I'm sure we'll get into that, as well as the, the kind of, Normandy, uh, Normandy stuff as well. So I know that he was an officer in the First World War. So obviously started as a junior officer in the First World War and did very well. Made a good account of himself as a tactician. Then in the interwar years, was remained in the in the army, and was I suppose good enough that he was, uh, I believe at the infantry school or whatever the German equivalent of the infantry training school was. I'm nodding, but only in a way I don't want to give you any more information because I've got lots of (laughs) talk about this. Sure. Um, And he wrote a few books on tactics that were very well received. And then obviously in the Second World War, he's quite famous for being an armoured senior commander at this point. Uh, And people still talk about the operational use of armoured capability in uh, in a very, very good way, like lots of lessons we can learn from Rommel. But other than that, I would say the only other thing I know is that there is then this myth, you know, of good German versus horrible Nazis. Mm. And there is clearly the, the link, albeit I don't know how concrete the link is between Rommel and the plot to kill Hitler, but ultimately that that was his demise because Hitler thought it was concrete enough that he would uh, have him killed. Um, and I think he, he was given the option, wasn't he, of a public trial. Not saying a or, word, not going to spoil or, uh, it. Okay, spoil so it. I'm stretching myself here, but I think he was given the option of a public trial where he would lose his reputation. He was a sort of national hero at this point yeah. or could quietly go into the night and commit suicide and would keep his reputation. And that, I think, is probably all I know about Rommel. You know, you, you, it's frustrating working with Gareth because he says, that's all I know. Actually, that's quite good. But we'll, we'll lay more on it. So, I don't know um, any details, I'll be honest. No, like, uh, if, you, if you're thinking I'm going to get to that battles, many details, you, you, you're out of luck. Literally, the only two battles I can name are, well, there were two battles of El Alamein and uh, the, the Battle of Normandy. So other than that, I, I literally I don't know units or battles or anything. So let, let's that. To, be, to be successful, we have to know units. Well, look, 
Uh, in a second, I'll do the sort of the history thing and we'll actually I want to go through the history thing relatively quickly. Otherwise, you know, other people can go read similar yeah, articles. You, but you've but, made the point. This is not but, a history podcast. This is but, about exploring what he did as a leader. Yeah, and, and how and why. Yeah. So um, things that, you know, big summary, popularly known as Der Wüstenfuch. That's terrible, actually. I'm half German. I should be able to pronounce that better. That is German for the desert fox. Are you half German? I am half German. That is I right. Not ah, well, I can tell you stories of grandparents fighting on opposite sides, but maybe that's a different different time. Um, there was this whole question of whether he was a brilliant strategist or a terrible strategist. And you talked about at an operational level with tanks. There's probably a conversation there. Oddly. He was not a member of the Nazi party, which was slightly surprising to me, given that when when he died, he was a field marshal in the German army. So you would think that seems unlikely he wasn't in the Nazi party, particularly because he was incredibly close to Hitler. And he was one of a, a small number of people who managed to influence Hitler and get him to do things that perhaps he wouldn't normally have done. Was he that was. So was that not being a member of the Nazi party a deliberate stand against it in that he he didn't believe in those views or was it just he wasn't political enough to have ever bothered? I suspect he wasn't political enough to have bothered. I, I will we'll, we'll, maybe we'll dig into this a bit more. When we do these kinds of things, we always look for deeper Machiavellian meanings. I suspect he was a good soldier in the sense of that's what I am a soldier and that's what I yeah. want to be and, and politics is maybe not yeah. interesting to me in the same way I, I think there's also a um a sense of duty in that as a soldier you I was going to say you rise above politics but I would say actually you sit below politics and let other people deal with politics and you are there ready to defend the nation as a good soldier, as you say. So if he, as, as he went through, you know, the First World War, all of the interwar political turmoil that Germany had, and then into the Second World War, I suspect he managed to get away with not being a member of the... Party. I think so. I was, and I, He'd already I, cemented a reputation as a, as a good field commander. I think so. Yeah. So, so broadly... Um, and I know we tried to sort of step away from this a little bit about good or bad, but he was clearly successful in a lot of what he did. I'm going to tell you stories where people would definitively say he was successful and, and you know, we'll, we'll talk about North Africa. But I want to remind people he was ultimately unsuccessful in North Africa. Again, we say, wow, this amazing general did these crazy things and then lost. And in fact, there's I, I'll go into slightly more detail, but there was a fantastic summary i read somewhere which was uh he went one way he went back he went one another way again he attacked again then he went back then he lost that was the description the short description of time in north africa um so tactic in the initial when he went the first way um that wasn't necessary my, my understanding is and again i i haven't read into this but my understanding is that wasn't his brilliance that was more the British in incompetence well, or, or lack of willing to do anything. I suspect there was a good mix of both of those things. So tactically, we'll talk about this through his history, tactically, arguably very, very good, but operationally, we don't know. 
Uh, as you said, author Between the Wars, he wrote a book called Infantry Attacks, which is still referred to today. He was without doubt very brave. So let, you know, one thing which I think is indisputable is he was a man who there is a story, I think it might have been in the First World War in France. Um, they were building a pontoon over a bridge under fire and he went and helped them. So brave, very clear he was brave. And by the way, I, I, as I was reading this and as I was writing this, I wondered, we love a brave soldier. So I wonder whether that helped shape how we think about him. Uh, he was loved by his troops and he was very thoughtful about building his own image. And, you know, you touched on the good German. We'll come to that later. Um, and the, the I mean, again, maybe I'm preempting a little bit. The good German myth. This sort of happened post-war, maybe the late 40s, maybe more early 50s. Well, what a surprise. That was when the German army was being rehabilitated as what became NATO started thinking about the possibility we were going to fight the Russians. And so all of a sudden, you can see how this story of Rommel, it'd be quite good to have a good German we can talk about. He's in there. Um, and without doubt, he still, as you said, lives in the minds of modern strategists. I've heard different podcasts and historians talk about the fact that Rommel, I think, is talked about in every staff college and every military college and yeah. people write papers. And there was just one quote that struck out to me. General Wesley Clark, who is a pretty famous and well-respected American general, his quote was, Rommel's military reputation has lived on and still sets the standards for a style of daring, charismatic leadership to which most officers aspire. And again, I think that captures him. Anyway, let's go back. He was born Johannes Erwin Eugen, great name, Eugen Rommel, 15th of November 90, uh, 1891 in a place called Heidenheim, which is sort of northwest of Munich. Um, his father was an artillery lieutenant. So something that's kind of of interesting in that world was he didn't come from the aristocratic Prussian background. So actually, he wasn't necessarily destined to be that sort of successful officer in a way that von Manstein, Guderian, and many of these yeah. others who have that. So he had to do a little bit of that. Um, but it did come from a military family. Did come from a military family. So there was an element of that. Um, Desmond Young, who wrote a book about Rommel called uh, Rommel the Desert Fox, characterizes the young Rommel, I love this, as lazy, inattentive and indifferent. And a note out there to any of our younger listeners is that um, oh, we don't have to give our younger members of our community stick for being lazy, inattentive and indifferent. Well, if your parents or your teachers describe you as that, say, seemed to work out for Rommel or in fact, many of the influences we have talked about so past performance does not predict future performance as they say hey there's another german general guy called von Moltke, who was a german general from a generation before uh before rommel uh, in fact a couple of generations before who came up with a very simple theory that i have now seen translated into the world of business which is categorizing people in one of those quadrant charts that you see all over management consulting stuff, um, where you have on the x-axis lazy to hardworking and on the y-axis stupid to clever. And 
Von Moltke talked about the fact that stupid, uh, lazy people were people that you wanted to be uh, very didactic with and put them into jobs where they are literally digging latrines. You, you tell them what to do and you make them do it. The hardworking, stupid people are the people that you then need where you don't have the ability to supervise, uh, but you just need lots of you know, manpower to go and do stuff. So your infantry needs to be made up of hardworking, stupid people. Then you have... I love this, by the way. There's infantiers listening to this, very angry with Von Molker at this point. <laughs> but stupid, hardworking people must absolutely have no leadership power at all because stupid, hardworking people are the most dangerous. And then he talks about clever, lazy people and clever, hardworking people. And so clever, hardworking people are the people you want in your bureaucracies, in your staff, doing the paperwork, doing the organisation, doing the management. And the lazy, clever people are the people that you want to be your field commanders, your strategists because they're the creative ones and they're the ones that if you put them in a staff job will just languish and not achieve anything. But if you give them command, they'll go and do brilliant. Um, and I was just reminded that, you know, early on he is identified as, you know, lazy. He's clearly bright. Clearly, so clearly bright. Would say, there is a man who's destined for command. I, I, I would imagine there's people who are listening saying, well, that's stupid. I would disagree. And I think there's one extra ingredient in there, which is to take lazy, clever people and find the thing that stops them being lazy. Yeah. Because, you know, if the if, if you, you've got people and you say, well, I mean, in this case, the, the final thing I was going to say was his father said, you should join the army instead of engineering. It's, it's less intellectual, more disciplined, go join the army. And I would imagine Rommel joins the army and says, oh, this is kind of different. I like this. I can I can do interesting things. So I, I think that's very good. Yeah, I, I think it's also, you know, it's one of those very, very oversimplified models. That... There's there's value to be picked at it. And I, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say in many of our influencers, I mean, particularly Cheshire, he was considered lazy. And so there's there's something in there to be discussed. All right. Well, look, he joined the army and uh, World War One happened not that long after that. I think he joined the army. I can't remember. Actually, I don't know what, what year he joined the army. But um, his first action was in Verdun in World War One. Uh, in 1914, and he was a platoon commander. So this is still relatively junior in his time. And yeah. he he won his Iron Cross second class. So immediately, this is a man now, you know, it's difficult to generalize without being there. But, you know, an Iron Cross was sort of a bravery. He was up there with his men. And he... This was, I think, an incredibly formative time. And he talks about this and he writes books about this. He found that taking the initiative and not allowing enemy forces to regroup, that is what leads to victory. And again, we've we've got this dichotomy of what we might imagine and what other people have said. Some authors have argued, well, that's fine, but your enemies in Verdun were less organized. 
second rate or depleted. And if you'd have gone up against adequately led, trained and supplied opponents, which might happen later in your career, Rommel, maybe the, the same thing wouldn't have happened. Difficult to tell, but so it's, interesting. It's, it's interesting. You, you talked about um, taking the initiative. Um, we, in the last influences, we looked at John Boyd and we looked at the the power of the OODA loop and we've promised to do a whole episode on unpacking that further and, and going into the detail. But for those listeners that didn't listen, please do go back and, and listen to that episode because I think it's a, it's a very useful one in terms of explaining a lot of the, the background concepts that we're probably going to gloss over here. But that idea of if you if you have an opportunity and you see the opportunity, you take the initiative, yep. that is something that is drilled into every soldier from the 18-year-old new recruit through to senior commanders on their advanced staff colleges that you have to create opportunity and then you have to take advantage of it. And that is all about when the army is in disarray, when they're weak, when they're confused, when things aren't going well, that's where you hammer home your advantage. Um, And so to the critics, I would say, yeah, anybody going up you know the argument of well you won but if you went up against somebody who was better you might not have won well yeah of course that applies to everybody all the time but it it doesn't take away from the fact that those officers or those those commanders and junior ncos do this just as much at sort of section and platoon level those people that see opportunity and take it what they enable is further fracturing of the enemy, creating more opportunity. And and the real risk is that if you don't get the balance right, you overextend your own lines. And then the counterattacks mean that they have the initiative and they can break. And so there is there is definitely a, a tactical game to play. But this comes back to the idea of mission command, Auschwald tactic, which was something that the Germans were starting to talk about in the first Absolutely. world. Absolutely. From their lessons from the Prussian, previously the Prussian army, there was a lot of discussion around this, but very few people actually doing it. We need to take a quick break now, but we will be right back in a moment. Rommel's experience in the First World War was, it was not just Verdun, was it? He was also, was he in Italy? He was in Italy. Let's Well, let's talk about Italy as well. So he then went to Italy. He was in yeah. the Battle of Caporetto, which was in 1917. So he, he had a reasonably distinguished First World War. Um, his battalion in uh, the Battle of Caporetto, there were three uh, rifle companies and a machine gun unit. And he had to take positions on three mountains, just to prove I did my homework. The Color of Rat, the Matajur, and Stoll, which almost certainly I've mispronounced. Um, And in two and a half days in October, Rommel and his 151 men captured 81 guns, 9,000 men, including 150 officers, at a loss of six dead and 30 wounded. 
How many men did Rommel have? He had 150 men. Oh, wow. You, I mean, that's, can, that's quite amazing. You can start to imagine now. The, and by the way, going back to your point about tactics, I, I agree with you about the change. Uh, I'm sorry, about the idea that people who take the initiative are going to be more successful. This was a classic story. And he, in this particular case, capturing the 9,000 men, he took advantage of the terrain, he outflanked the Italian forces, and he attacked from unexpected directions or even behind their lines, and even taking the initiative to attack when he had orders to the contrary. This is a little bit of a Rommelism. He picked yeah. the orders he chose, chose to live. So what I like about this is, yes, the initiative. You, you can see there's a reason why Rommel actually started to build this myth maybe is the wrong word but he built this reputation but i still love the fact that people are still arguing about whether he merited that and i think i mean clearly he did these things yeah why are people arguing about this that's kind of interesting as so, well. i i would say from that from from my personal experience of you know, doing mountain warfare and i've only ever done it thankfully on exercises i've not really ever had to fight operationally in mountains it's physically incredibly hard anyone who's you know been hill walking or mountaineering will know how how physically difficult it is to do that with all the equipment that is required to fight a war and at a pace where you are managing to seize opportunities like whatever else happened straight away you can tell that this is a committed soldier who has, and I don't know whether he was given, you know, good motivated soldiers or he created good motivated soldiers. Oh, I suspect will, but he, he is he, definitely one of them, and he's leading. As you said, you talked about charismatic leadership. You can't, you can't sit at the back and tell people what you want them to achieve, and then you know, put your feet up when you're fighting in mountains, it doesn't work like that. The second thing I would say is the, the idea that he carried out operations, seized opportunities and did actions even when he was ordered not to is very, very interesting because somebody I've mentioned a couple of times in this podcast before, General Stan McChrystal, actually gave an order in, in Iraq when he was the commander of the... US SOCOM, so US Special Operations Command, where he said to all of his subordinates, if you are in a situation where you feel that you've been given the wrong orders because the situation doesn't match what I described, then it is on you to carry out the orders that you think I would give you in this current situation. Go against my orders and use your initiative which is a very easy thing to say when you're talking about it on a podcast, when you are a commander and you are responsible for the outcomes, including the lives and the well-being of the people under your command, that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. But to be the subordinate who says, for the greater good of the operation, to achieve what we need to achieve my boss is wrong, again, you either have to have an incredibly good trust relationship or an incredibly strong sense of your own belief in 
So either he is demonstrating a tactical understanding that links to the operational and strategic outcomes, which is brilliant, or he's so self-assured and was lucky. And I suspect, you know, we will never know, but I suspect the reality is somewhere in between. Um, and the third thing I would say is 100, 100-ish troops going up against, did you say 1,100? Uh, 9,000. 9,000. 150 men captured 81 guns and 9,000 men. Is, is, yeah. So that doesn't happen as a result of just keep going. That happens as a result of a, a collapse in the adversary's understanding of what is happening around them. You don't, you know, it is just mathematically not doable because you can't have the resupply to have the ammunition to be able to do that just through attrition. So that has to be getting inside, both physically, and you said, you know, unsuspecting roots, getting inside the enemy's lines, but also getting inside the enemy's heads. And it, it reminds me of a story of a, a commander I, I once worked for when he was a junior officer in the initial invasion of Iraq in 2003, they were flying in to the Al Thor Peninsula, southern Iraq, and they were supposed to land on what was a troop or company position. And he was a troop commander, so about 30-odd men in a couple of helicopters. So already breaking those three-to-one assault-to-defense ratios, but the idea being that we had overwhelming you know, fire support from the shipping and fire support from from uh, aircraft that would kind of give them parity and ended up landing by accident on a bad intelligence um, on a enemy battalion, armoured battalion position. And very, very quickly, he and his troop sergeant realised that they were vastly outnumbered. And so they decided they were going to... Um, spread the force out and pretend they were a much, much larger force and hope that the deception worked. And it did. And the entire battalion surrendered. And then he was faced with a massive problem of if they find out during the process of taking the surrender... We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Um, and, and so they had to get through it. He won a, a military cross for that action. But well, it- what what an interesting echo... <clears throat> Do it once, and you might argue, well, he got lucky. So the example I gave you was in October of 1917. Then uh, in November, he was the advance guard uh, of the capture of, and I'll apologise again, I'll get these names wrong, Longeron, which could be Longeroni, but I I don't know. Uh, Rommel again decided to attack with a much smaller force. And I, I didn't know you were going to tell that story. Convinced they were surrounded by an entire German division, the first Italian infantry division of 10,000 men surrendered to Rommel. For this and his earlier actions, he received the order of Paula Merit. Or Merite. Merite. So, oh, I nearly got that very badly wrong. But really good example. Tactically, he was doing the right things. 19,000 men captured, you can imagine that sets him up as a German officer of, of, of merit. So now let's fast forward. He's now in the 30s. 
And so he writes a book called Infanterie Greift An, which is translated as Infantry Attacks. And he recounts his lessons learned in France and Belgium and presumably Italy. The lessons were both personal and tactical, but the tactical ones I thought were particularly interesting and frankly are a foreshadowing of, of how he's thinking now in, in World War II. But you can see just a couple of these examples. You already know what he's going to say almost. And this is now starting to become doctrine. This is starting to become influential. And as I said, you know, um, modern staff colleges still have copies of uh, infantry attacks. So here's, yeah. here's his summary. Here's how Rommel is going to fight war. Action decides the issue. He who acts first can impose his will on the other. Uh, he quotes the quote is he win he wins who fires first and can deliver the heaviest fire. Oodle loop, bit of oodle loop in there. If he'd have known about oodle loop, he probably would have talked about it. Well, remember John Boyd, heavily influenced by the German assaults into France and Belgium, which hasn't happened yet, but Rommel is you know a good part of exactly. and these these ideas are starting to ferment. I, I would imagine John Boyd read this. So number two, momentum must be maintained to carry through to the objective and to overcome the enemy's resistance. Don't stop. Anyone who's studied North Africa, lots of not stopping. Yeah. Firepower must be available to the forward units. Pretty tactical military thing there. Reconnaissance must be planned in detail and conducted in a thorough manner. I like the Germanness there. Thorough <laughs> manner. I want good intelligence. So there is a, a mantra that we all live and die by, which is time on recce is never wasted. And absolutely, if the more you can understand what is happening, the more you can seize the opportunity. I bet there's a German translation of that, which is used in American armoured battalions. But So reconnaissance, oh, we've done reconnaissance. Infantry artillery liaison must be maintained at all times. So he's starting yeah. to understand the relationship between artillery and infantry. And for anyone who doubts that wisdom, please see the current activity in Ukraine. It is all about infantry artillery liaison. And then you go back into the 70s and 80s, how the Russians would fight, how we would stop them, infantry artillery. Given this is back in the 30s, given the lethality of modern weapons, particularly artillery, actions must be taken to increase protection, prepared positions, dispersed command posts and covered and concealed routes. Again, I suspect there may be some people in Ukraine reading infantry attacks over a torchlight tonight. So they are Ma literally the, the, coming out of Ukraine at the moment are lots and lots of statements about needing to dig needing to disperse and needing to move we are relearning by watching what's happening in eastern europe at the moment you know, some pretty old lessons around don't get found and if you get found move quickly i wonder if we should translate infantry attacks into ukrainian i'm sure it's already in ukrainian main forces may bypass points of local resistance now, I don't know how much military doctrine that is today, but if you look at the way the Germans prosecuted the war in Germany, particularly in the East, 
main forces bypass points of local resistance. We're just going to go past towns and cities. We're not going to yeah. fight in those. We're going to go around them. So this, this, is, this is fundamental to the manoeuvrist approach, which is the idea of you, you, you pitch your strength against the enemy's weakness. You don't hit their strength head on. Um, and, and I think it's, it's interesting because we've talked about Rommel's sort of, I guess, military education of the First World War. He was involved in very manoeuvrist, dismounted light infantry tactics. He was fighting in mountains. He was fighting in the early forest wars in France and, and Belgium. Um, he didn't do what most people did which was sit in trenches. He didn't really do any of the trench warfare. And so all of his lessons about manoeuvre can be scaled up when you start to think about armour in a way that most people's fighting experiences of the First World War aren't. And I suspect if you scale up French junior commanders who were fighting in trenches and you scale up Rommel's junior command who's fighting in mountains and forests, what you end up with is the Maginot line and let's go round it. I and and also when the people who are influencing are the people who have written infantry attacks versus a French group who presumably more. You'll like these. Deceiving the enemy helps to ensure the success of the attack. We had a yeah. whole episode. That's a big thing. And then the final one he said, and I left this one to the end because I think he would have winked at this point. Concerning command, the will and personal example of the leader are required to command and control his forces. It's the guy in the front. It's the guy at the top. He's going to win the battle. Yeah. And I I know this is, this is almost quite a really nice place to break because of everything you might say about Rommel, as a, as a tactical, on-the-ground commander leading a let's say, for, just for simplicity, a relatively small group of people to achieve a goal, that seems pretty bulletproof. And I would imagine this week it is being taught in some staff college somewhere to a group of young officers and saying, with slightly modern words, this is how you fight battles at the unit level. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that personal leadership, that lead by example, you lead, people follow. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast, and we've talked about how you scale this up. And, of course, once you become a, an operational commander in a brigade headquarters or a divisional headquarters or in the world of business, once you become a, uh, a manager and leader of an organisation that's on multiple sites that isn't just a small team operating out of one office, you, you can't personally lead by example all the time but you can set the example for those that will um and i, I think i've said this before i've said people overestimate their ability to control and influence through their through the direction that they give and they tend to continually underestimate the influence they have through the actions that they take it's really hard to get a large organisation to change its culture by telling it it needs to change its culture. You need to change your behaviours. But by doing things that bleed through, through osmosis, 
by being the change that you want to see, you can have that impact. And the military is a really, really good learning environment for that, not for the reasons that you might think, but because we tend to change commanders quite abruptly every couple of years. And so you get to see the difference in personalities and how that within, within only a few weeks to change the feel of an entire division or an entire brigade just by having the personality change at the top. And within a couple of weeks, it feels like a different organisation. Right. Well, that's it for now. Thank you for listening to the first of two episodes on Erwin Rommel. Please join us again for episode two of The Influencers, Erwin Rommel, where we'll be discussing his exploits through the Second World War and then drawing out our usual lessons. But that's it for now. Thanks very much. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.